is up, Bitcoiners? I just sat down and had a wide-ranging and epic conversation with the man, the myth, the legend, Alan Farrington, the squirrel from Twitter. Uh, this dude is awesome. He is so incredibly well-read. Uh, and his writings are incredible. I started following him before he even had a thousand followers based off a thread that he wrote on the wealth of networks. Uh, and since then, it's it's been an absolute gold mine, an absolute Bitcoin mine, uh, as you will, of information. Um, Alan has been dropping so many incredible pieces, first with Quillette and then on his Medium and hopefully on Bitcoin Magazine in the future. Uh, you got to listen or read all of them. Guy Swan, our man over at Bitcoin Audible, has read a lot of Alan's articles. Uh, but we dive into several of them and we dive into kind of like a cosmic and heady um, understanding of Bitcoin on this podcast. I think you guys are going to really like it. Before we get into it, though, I want to tell you about the Bitcoin 2021 conference. Alan is going to be speaking at the conference. He has an epic talk. We teased it a little bit in this show, uh, but there's going to be so many incredible panels. I myself will be uh, moderating a panel on the circular economy, but we have topics on, you know, why you should be bullish on Bitcoin, why maximalism and plebs matter, um, the technical side of Bitcoin, layer two, smart contracts, everything really like it's all there and uh you can go check it out on the website b.tc forward slash conference check out the agenda check out the speakers check out the sponsors check out the ticket page i mean if you listen to this at this point and you haven't bought a ticket you probably already missed out but there are a few tickets left maybe and if you want to get the best price you got to pay in btc so you can buy in fiat you can buy in btc and if you want to get the best of both worlds you want to spend your fiat and pay us in btc you can use our partner MoonPay to do so. So MoonPay is built directly into um, our ticketing page and you can use Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, your debit card, your credit card in order to make a transaction free, a transaction fee free transaction and pay for your ticket in BTC using fiat. We get paid out in Bitcoin. You get to spend your dirty dollars um, it's the best of both worlds and you get a discounted ticket to the best Bitcoin conference ever. You can see Alan live there. You can see Michael Saylor. You can see Jack Dorsey and so much more. Um, y'all are going to love this one. Uh, yeah, let's just jump right into this podcast. Bitcoiners, I am really honored to bring you this episode. Uh, this is a man who's been putting out incredible work and is not on a lot of podcasts. I am sitting across the screen from Alan Farrington. Alan, welcome to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. Thank you very much. So, Alan, I don't know if you know this, but I've been following you since before you even had a thousand followers. Uh, I just remember no way. your Twitter. You're the sub one K club. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, but uh, you're, you're just your Twitter threads were just incredible. And then you broke down um, the wealth of networks by uh, uh, I, I forget. Yeah, Yochai Bankler. You remember that? Yeah. I don't think I broke it down. I mean, that is an incredible book. It was more I just quoted my favorite parts of it. I don't want you to give me too much credit here. Like, I don't have anything to add to that. Everyone should just well, go read it. <laughs> It's, it's an absolutely incredible book. For me, the two most important books that you can read are The Wealth of Networks and The Sovereign Individual. Um, yeah, but, yeah, absolutely. I actually think I, you might be plagiarizing me a little bit there because I think I responded to somebody saying something like, um, yeah, other than The Sovereign Individual, what should I read to understand Bitcoin? But that isn't about Bitcoin. And I gave a big list. And I, I'm pretty sure the first thing I said was The Wealth of Networks, yeah. Yeah, well, that's how I started following you. Is like I read the wealth of networks, Wonderful. and then you were like the only what person. A, what a cute me! No, what a me! And, and <laughs> you were the only person on Twitter who's talking about it. So I was like, all right, I'm following this guy. And then that yeah, I'm the, I'm the bankler stand. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it it's been a, a pleasure to follow you, and you know, you the work that you've been putting out into the Bitcoin space has only gotten better and better. Right. It started out with that thread that caught my attention. 10,000 followers later, you're dropping Bitcoin is Venice and uh, which was one of the most, I think, elo eloquent and beautifully written kind of like hot. Let's just call it uh, more heady, uh, you know, thank kind you. of analysis no, really of, of Bitcoin that I've read. No, thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate that. I like that you are only 
complementing it and not alluding to the various ways in which it is blatantly clickbait. <laughs> well, hey, you know, if if there's any sort of like, let's just call it clickbaity nature about Bitcoin is Venice, it's in the most like high level, like sophisticated Bitcoin thinkers <laughs> realm of clickbait I, I really don't think that this is uh the average plus well, i mean the, the thing is okay yeah like obviously that's what i was going for but knowing that's what i was going for i had to wrap it in clickbait or else no one would read it so we're going to talk about bitcoin as menace but before we do you know i want to kind of give the bitcoin magazine audience like a quick intro to like who is alan farrington how did you discover bitcoin why are you able yeah, to yeah synthesize Bitcoin in such elegant ways throughout all of your articles, not just Venice, not just Capital Strip Mine, but I, I feel like every single one is, uh, you know, is, is a, a dime or is a, is a gem. Sure. I mean, I, I've been asked this a lot recently, basically when I've started doing more, uh, more content where I actually talk, uh, you know, so podcasts and, and I've gotten relatively into Clubhouse as well. I've told this story a couple of times there, but my, my sort of Bitcoin origin story is frankly just not that interesting. It's, it's very slow. It's very gradual. Um, it's very coincidental as well. So I think, I don't even remember specifically, like this is how uninteresting the start was. I think it was in 2013. It might've been in 2014. I got into it because uh, this is where it's highly coincidental. So I was studying uh, math and philosophy at undergrad at the time. Um, I was also uh, towards the end of a uh, running a, a business that started that really wasn't very successful at all. But, you know, I maintain it was, it was like a good idea, but it just lost me a lot of money. Um, but it, it played really well in interviews, though. So, it was, you know, I learned a lot about life. Um, but there's, you know, that element of, of entrepreneurialism there, um, complete coincidence. I was fairly, not as much as I am now, but I was fairly well read on Austrian economics. Um, and also the only job I had had around that time, you know, other than just like you know, minimum wage, like flipping burgers kind of thing as a student, uh, was as a software engineer. So I was a horrible software engineer, but I at least had a kind of a basic grasp of, and not even computer science, because if anything, I think that my interest in computer science is more from studying math, just, you know, how computers work, like how code actually works. So I was ridiculously, coincidentally well-placed to appreciate Bitcoin when I first came across it, which I think is, um, I, I don't take that for granted at all. I know how lucky I was. I, I, I know that the, the traditional origin story is, you know, you spend a, at least a year thinking it's stupid. And that's not at all to say that I understood it. it I still don't claim to understand it now, uh, not fully, certainly. Um, but I think I had a massive head start in terms of not thinking it was stupid right away and taking it a bit more seriously. The only problem, though, was that as a student, I had no money. Well, actually, the way I like to say it is I had a large amount of negative money, so I couldn't buy any Bitcoin then. Um, but I was kind of interested in it, and I think maybe the slight problem was that this all everybody will this this will resonate with everybody immediately that not having bought any hindered further understanding because you really need to be exposed personally i think to you you need to you need to have skin in the game as you see Mandra says and i think wrote a whole book about um to uh, to to really kind of push yourself to take the next step so that was maybe 2013 2014 um i didn't buy any until i actually had a job uh which was a couple of years later so it would have been about 2016 or so um, and it was only, first of all, buying a little bit, but then maybe a year or two later, buying a lot more that I pushed myself to really try to understand it more. Um, that's when I would say, I mean, because I had a far more gradual path, I, I think my impression is at least than most people who describe themselves as Bitcoiners. If there's a single moment where I say, okay, then that's when it actually, you know, I, I sort of became one, uh, it probably would have been about 2017, 2018, which is like hilarious timing anyway, given what happened over the course of that year. And, you know, give me a lot to think about a lot of, a lot of new material to, to grapple with and try to try to understand. Um, and then I started writing, well, I started writing just uh, kind of more in general, uh, well before I started writing about Bitcoin. And actually, I'm not sure that many Bitcoiners even know this, or even people who follow me on Twitter, I don't think that many know this, that the very first piece of public writing I did was in Quillette in December 2018, 
I think. That's not Solid right. publication for your first uh, public writing. Yeah, I, I submitted. I mean, I've been reading them for a while. I quite like them. Um, I submitted just on a whim. I was like, yeah, why not? Let's see. They might like this. Who knows? Um, and it was an article about PewDiePie, uh, the YouTuber. Um, sorry, as if people need an introduction. Well, I don't know. People might not know who PewDiePie is. He, he at one point, was the, the most followed YouTube account uh, before he was tragically overtaken by a, a corporate behemoth. And, and that's actually what I detail in the article, how sad that was and, and what it speaks to in, in larger cultural terms. Um, but the thing that's really funny about that, though, is that this was before I even had Twitter, and I kind of regretted not creating a Twitter account in anticipation of this being published in Quillette because it completely blew up and it shut down their servers when PewDiePie retweeted it. They briefly went offline because so many people immediately clicked on this Quillette link when PewDiePie retweeted it with like an emoji or something. I think his only comment was like a winking face or something like that. Um, but yeah, I regret not having Twitter because I probably would have got to 10K followers almost immediately, but it, you know, it did, it did really well. Um, a couple of months after that, I got Twitter basically because I was convinced by uh, prominent Bitcoiners who were just personal friends um, that I sort of had to in order to understand what was going on. Um, and so, yeah, then I got Twitter in uh, Mar no, February or March 19 and then started putting out Bitcoin content bit by bit, gradually building up to, uh, yes, Bitcoin is Venice, which I'm sure is what you want to spend the most time talking about. I mean, I want to I want to talk about kind of your journey more than any particular oh, piece. Yeah, sure. But like, I guess let's talk about you know, obviously you're a talented writer. Uh, you know that the piece in Quillette blowing up, I'm sure is you know no accident. I'm sure is timely as well as you know got the endorsement of the subject. But I'm sure it's a fantastic article. All of your articles that I've read have been fantastic. Can you just talk about maybe like your journey through? you know, thinking about Bitcoin and then synthesizing Bitcoin into these, uh, these incredible thought pieces? Sure, I, I can try. I'm not sure I've ever been asked anything quite like that. I mean, maybe what this is pointing at is, is quite interesting and comes across in a few other articles I can, uh, I can sort of pump, I guess. Um, there, your articles, there were, man. There were, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm sure you can put the, the links in, you know, however, this is a, whether you're tweeting them out or whatever, or putting them under the, the description for the podcast. All the articles under. will be in the description, y'all. Yes, all the articles. Smash the articles, listen, read them all, listen to them on, on Bitcoin Audible. Alan is the man. If you're just learning about him now, shame on you. All right, let's keep going. Um, so besides the the Quillette one, I'm um, sorry, I, I don't think I even mentioned this in the, in the, the previous thing, um, the previous remarks about that Quillette article. What was funny about that was that it's nominally about PewDiePie and then it's, I don't know, sub-nominally about the unfortunate architecture of the internet and why YouTube and hence you know, Google and Alphabet have the power that they do over PewDiePie that I'm lamenting in the article. But it's actually obviously about Bitcoin, despite not ever mentioning Bitcoin. Um, and I think that was part of why it, it, it did so well, because, you know, the right people realized that. Oh, there's something absolutely hilarious in this as well that um, I, I, I'm going to bring up, uh, I'm, I'm going to frame this as self-deprecatingly as possible because people will realize it on their own. So I want to front run it. I want to get ahead of it. Uh, there's a link to the Bitcoin white paper in the Colette article. And I don't remember if this is my fault or not. I assume it probably is my fault. Uh, but I'm going to blame the Quillette editors just because they can't prove me wrong as far as I'm aware. Uh, that link only works on Chrome because it has some stupid Chrome prefix thing on it. Um, so actually, most people clicking on the link, thinking that they might get to the Bitcoin white paper, will get some Google-esque error. Um, so if anything, that shows that I had not fully become a Bitcoiner and, and that, you know, nobody ever fully does, but this was, this was one such error on the way. But anyway, um, so yeah, the other two, which were quite a bit later than that, um, I forget the exact, the, the exact time doesn't really matter. Uh, they were both in another magazine called Aereo. Um, the first one is called Towards a Free and Open Internet. And then the second one is called, I believe, um, a blue sky vision for social media. Um, and that in particular, people will probably get the reference right away. 
that was commentary on how Twitter's Blue Sky project had come about. Um, but the reason I'm bringing these up in the first place to get back to your question is that I actually think, I don't think this would be that unusual for Bitcoiners, but um, maybe a way of like taxonomizing me, you know, where I, <laughs> where I fit within uh, people who like Bitcoin for whatever reason. Um, I wouldn't actually say that I, I like Bitcoin just on its own. I, I think that I see Bitcoin as by far the best example and the most powerful for like totally obvious reasons we don't really need to go into. Um, but the best and the most powerful, the most successful and so on and so forth example of uh, not just free and open source software, but worthwhile attempts to re-decentralize the internet. I think actually my my sort of, I forget how you fit my journey, was that it? Or my approach to Bitcoin was actually more through dissatisfaction with, I mean, obviously on the one hand, you know, central banking, et cetera, you know, like I said, I had the, the, the Austrian literature more or less down. Um, but I don't think that even though I, I sort of was drawing on all of that, that wasn't what actually motivated me. I don't think, um, obviously I'm just trying to recreate all of this experience now, but I think what motivated me was general dissatisfaction with understanding how centralized the internet actually has become and also that hardly anybody realizes this and it's really annoying and you know if you say there's a great way to test this by the way which i discovered entirely by accident which is if you check if, if you're talking to someone and you're not sure whether they're on board with this just ask them if they know the difference between the internet and the web and they'll very likely say no if they're being honest right and, and even if you have quite high expectations of that person's kind of general education. And to be clear, I don't think that's in any way, you know, if somebody does say no. Do I know? I don't think I know. So I failed the test. There you go. See, even some Bitcoiners don't know. Um, But if you did, you'd be an even better Bitcoiner because you'd be mad about it. Um, But, you know, I don't don't think it, it doesn't reflect badly on any individual who says that. It reflects badly on society. <laughs> you know, that this is a very Yochai Benkler thing, by the way. This is, I mean, he wrote that book so long ago that he didn't anticipate this, I don't think, but it falls out of it very naturally that people are just so used to how, like, the end product, right? They, they're used to the output. But the, if anything, the output has become so good, so slick, that they're not even motivated to think about the throughput. And the throughput has become awful and... Drum roll. Bitcoin fixes this. Okay, so what's the difference between the internet and the web and how does Bitcoin fix this? <laughs> oh, you're putting me on the spot in an entirely unhelpful way. I'm not sure I can actually give the correct answer to that. And I'm also not sure that Bitcoin fixes that specifically. Um, okay, so what I say is something like um, the internet is largely physical infrastructure that enables data transmission. The web is a particular protocol for data transmission, specifically hypertext transmission. But as it's since you know expanded its capabilities to have effectively any kind of media. So um, TCP/IP, pretty much building off of that. Yes, That's yes. Continue so to be the web. So the, the so, internet is the server infrastructure globally, and then the web is. Oh, it's way more than that. I think it's actually more helpful. To not well. I, yeah, you probably have to throw servers in there. I, I tend to think of it as to be sorry. I think of it as more helpfully describing the physical infrastructure of the the network. I mean, there's no really. This is like semantics at this point. Um, yeah, the servers, the cables. I'm I'm very quickly getting out of my depth, as you can tell. You know <laughs> how physically it all actually works. That's the internet. Um, Bitcoin is a well. It's not competing really. It's an alternative internet protocol to HTTP. Um, it's the money, the value protocol. Um, so it doesn't fix uh, the internet. It doesn't fix HTTP. What it potentially starts to fix is the fact that the lack, this is basically, I'm now front running uh, towards a free and open internet. What it potentially fixes is that the lack of a value protocol and not, not purely for money necessarily, but if anything, I guess a, a more expansive set of worthwhile characteristics. So value as encapsulated in trade by money, but also scarcity, consensus, and conceivably identity, all of which are somewhat related to one another. 
um, don't really exist in any meaningful sense on the web. Um, basically, be well, no, it's not worth going into exactly why they don't exist. Part of the reason they don't exist is because Bitcoin didn't exist then. Um, but the consequences of why Bitcoin didn't exist, or the consequences of Bitcoin not existing and all these other things also not existing, um, are particularly horrific when you get to the throughput rather than the output, which is basically that they're obviously desirable. You know, a huge amount of human interaction depends on, well, I mean, almost by definition, any human interaction depends on consensus to some extent. You have to agree on what you're doing and talking about. Um, it's also helpful to know who you're talking to and to know that that's true. Um, and it's also helpful to be able to pay people if you're interacting with them. It would know, be nice to have that be a component. Um, but the fact that those building blocks were not there prior to Bitcoin meant that anything that ideally involved identity or consensus or money, obviously, had to be centralized. And it had to be sort of, there had to be this facade of a protocol for identity, say, existing, which I think is fair to say, maybe not anymore, but for a long time, Facebook is basically, and like, it's assorted entities. We're more or less the protocols. And, and well, and email to some extent, yeah, but then Google sort of swallowed that in terms of forcing Gmail into everything. Um, so between Facebook and Google, um, between the, the surveillance capitalists, um, they, they more or less recreated these identity protocols, but they're not real protocols. They're really apps. And Google and Facebook are the central parties that control everything. And if you're naughty, they unperson you. And obviously for money, it's even worse because it's, it's far, far more heavily regulated. Um, I, Bitcoiners will need no particular explanation of that. But I think if anything, what's interesting, why I think Bitcoiners might like that article in particular is thinking how this extends beyond just value and just money, because a lot of things can be tied into it that are, I wouldn't say they're worse necessarily, but they're bad in similar ways. And Bitcoin fixes them conceivably if the infrastructure is built out enough, not, not just Bitcoin on its own, but for, to give an example of this. So um, if or when, hopefully, Lightning is liquid enough, widespread enough, you know, the, the tools to integrate it are simple enough and robust enough, can almost certainly do away with most internet advertising because there would be no way for a content creator to need to monetize that way. They can just yank all the JavaScript out of however, you know, it doesn't even matter what it is, if it's a web page, if it's you know, podcasting is maybe a bit different, so it's not, not the best example. Um, but all of the survey, I'm actually not joking or being ironic this time, all of the surveillance of the surveillance capitalists can just be removed because the people who it's allegedly, well, I mean, it is benefiting them because people need to have a way of monetizing. Um, but they can just do it natively because now there is native value. So that's maybe that's like a more concrete example of rather than just, <laughs> oh, Bitcoin yeah. fixed this. <laughs> no, no, and totally. And I mean, you talked about the internet actually being, let's just call it the hardware networking infrastructure that actually connects all of this stuff together. And I would even argue that Bitcoin is the impetus to fix that as well. Because Bitcoin, oh, yeah. Yeah, you could even make Bitcoin is, a, is a networked hardware revolution. It is a physical network. And I would say that many altcoiners, many Bitcoin deniers, like kind of re reject that reality that there is a physical network here that is remaining in consensus yeah. every single 10 minutes. And that network, you know, has the properties of like slime mold or some sort of, uh, you know, let's just call it uh, naturally occurring um, you know, network species that is, you know, taking inputs and, you know, kind of making decisions and, and, and building out infrastructure based on, uh, you know, where uh, the resources are, right? Where the physical resources are. So I'm curious what your take is on, on that. I, to be honest, I, I would say just referring back to my, my previous comments about um, not knowing you were going to put me on the spot in that way, that that's very much brushing up against where I have any real competence. Um, I'm very much not, you know, I mentioned I was, a, I was briefly a not very good software engineer. I've never been a hardware engineer. Um, I mean, the one thing I would say though, just to just kind of keep it going in that direction is this is just about the edge of what I can actually claim to understand. 
very similar example to, uh, I don't think I actually used the word, but implicitly micropayments with, with Lightning enabling monetization of content. I think there's a, there's a really interesting, and in, as far as I can tell, entirely open question as to how ultimately hardware, yeah, how, how hardware needs to, or well, I better say has the opportunity to adjust to the ability to stream money for usage. So to effectively to, to meter um, computing resource. Because surely, it, you know, if, if that's possible at any meaningful scale, absolutely, it will change. It can't not change because it's it's set up to work in a world where that, you know, that's just not possible. It's like, it's ultimately all paid for with bank transfers, which is not a good idea. It's not very efficient. So let's jump into uh, some of your articles. Um, Bitcoin is Venice is one of actually a series. Um, mm -hmm. Do you kind of want to just talk about this series, how it kind of came to be, and then maybe we can like walk through each piece? Oh, sure. Yeah. To be honest, I wouldn't want to spend too much time on the first two, um, frankly, because they're, they're not as fun. They're not as exciting as Bitcoin is Venice. Um, and maybe the setup will make clearer or clearer why. Um, and also for any listeners who haven't heard of any of this, uh, you can read them all independently. So it, they were written with that in mind that they're probably better if you read them in order, but they're also pretty long. So like, don't force yourself to slog through them if you don't, if you don't really want to. No, no, um, you, you need to read them. <laughs> this is required homework. Okay, sure. But it's not, it's not coming from me. Um, I, I, I am cognizant of opportunity cost. You're, you know, nobody has, nobody has a, a time preference of zero. So there are other things you need to do. Alan, you're, like, you're biased because you already read them and wrote them. So that's true. So. Yeah, I read them. I read them many, many times. Um, so the, the first, the idea of the first two, uh, so the first one's called Wittgenstein's Money. The second one is called the Capital Strip Mine. What I wanted to do was... Uh, to be honest, as much for myself as anything, because I just thought this would be an interesting exercise, recreate all of the assumptions about economics that are necessary to understand and appreciate Bitcoin, recreate them from first principles and with as little, preferably none, preferably no reference to external authorities. So rather than just, you know, quoting at length, whoever, very likely Menger, Mises, Hayek, you might throw in some other non-Austrians uh, just, <laughs> just for variety. Um, and then, you know, therefore Bitcoin. I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to, um, acknowledging obviously that this isn't original in any sense, like there's no novel economic revelations in here, but just go through it logically step by step Assuming that you know basically nothing about economics, but a decent amount about, I guess, real life, like common sense, um, you know, opportunity cost, uh, that it takes time to do things. I mean, I'm saying these like they're profound. They're absolutely not. But if anything, that's kind of, that is Austrian economics in a nutshell. <laughs> I think is like, how do you codify common sense rather than, you know, a, a misapplying math to it and then deriving uh, implications that are very pretty, but literally nonsensical. Well, uh, Austrian economics is like, it's almost like rejecting models. Yeah. Yeah. That's how that's, you subjective independent actors yeah. are making decisions. Well, I, I go, I'd be wrong. a bit more specific than that. I would, I would say it is radically subjective. So you tend to find this if you, I mean, I don't recommend this This would be a massive waste of your time. Definitely read my articles before you do what I'm about to suggest. Um, if you read any kind of, you know, quote unquote, founding documents for other schools or, or not even like there tends not to be precisely founding documents, um, well-regarded texts of other schools, which may actually be interesting and worthwhile on their own, but just not as much as reading Menger, for example, you'll tend to find that they, they make passing reference to subjectivism and they will at the very least, I mean, basically other than Marxist economic thought, or if you're going so far back, anything that is contemporary, right? So if, if you want to go all the way back to like Ricardo and Smith, they'll say similarly silly things, but just because effectively the marginal revolution hasn't hadn't happened yet at that point. What these other texts, what these non-Austrian texts will say is they will acknowledge subjectivism, 
but they'll then attempt to kind of explain it away in certain circumstances or or diminish its its influence in general and and you know play up where there can be expertise and where there can be market failure and blah blah, blah. whereas austrianism is is if anything i guess simpler and more consistent it's just nope all value is subjective value means nothing beyond subjectivism the end that was so it's worth chipping that in <laughs> yeah uh, no in in like you know that seems common sense but at the same time it's actually a rejected economic yeah. uh, theory <laughs> weird isn't it <laughs> well i think the problem right is that you can't axiomatize that mathematically in an interesting well maybe interesting is not even the right word in a sophisticated way there's nothing you can do with that so yeah why would you why why not come up with some bullshit equation that um from which you you, you can do more fun math but which has no connection to reality i don't know i'm not an economist maybe that's that's probably coming across anyway yeah uh, no um but I, you okay? You're not a, a, a <laughs> an engineer. You're not a computer yeah, yeah. scientist. You're not an economist. But I would say that you are a polymath, and you know you seem like you're a very well rounded. And I personally think that Bitcoin <laughs> typically typically requires people who don't have a, a fine scope of expertise, but rather a wide yes of yeah. understanding per se. I had a good snarky tweet about this just the other day. Um, it's funny because I was thinking about saying it myself, but I was like waiting for the perfect opportunity to drop it. Uh, it was in reply to somebody else. I don't even remember what they said, which tells you how snarky it is. Um, but I, I said, I won't get this exactly right, but I said something like, I, I used to wonder how Bitcoiners knew so much. But then I realized that anybody who knows a lot becomes a Bitcoiner. And I, I, I tend to agree to that, right? Um, it's yeah. like... If you know too much, you're stuck into your lane. You can't. But if you know like this wide variety of things, it and it, it enables you to to grok Bitcoin because Bitcoin is truly a multi um, mm, faceted yeah. beast. I mean, it's and, it's exactly why I um I I deliberately made it clear how genuinely lucky I am. Aware, I'm completely aware how lucky I was when I first encountered this because I had some relevant background in just about everything you would need to, again, not understand it, but not dismiss it as completely stupid. Um, and almost a perfect combination because I'm by no means an expert in any of this, right? I already said I'm a terrible programmer. I was just an undergrad in math and philosophy. I, I didn't go anywhere. I have a job now. Um, what was the other thing? There was something else in there. Oh yeah, I just happened to know about Austrian economics, which, which is actually that that was spurred along i mean that was just like an intellectual interest but it was spurred along by having started a company because this is one of the things i love saying this to bitcoiners because they're sort of they they tend to be more entrepreneurial by nature which is understandable but also actually referring back to how, how this line of the conversation started that if they have been an entrepreneur that makes them more likely to become a bitcoiner um, and I think exactly the same thing goes for Austrianism, actually, that having run a business, again, horrifically, I just lost a lot of money in that business, but it made me appreciate, I would say in particular, Hayek far, far more than I think I would have otherwise. Um, so yeah, not an expert in any of these things, but a very nice balance across, you know, on the face of it, quite unrelated subjects that I was able to not completely dismiss Bitcoin and actually take it seriously enough to then get more involved later on. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it, it, it's a wonder, like that reality really explains why maybe academics, economists, these folks that are like fiat trained to be hyper-specialized, um, mm. they just, they just don't see it. Like, right. It's just not, uh, it, you know, it, it kind of goes over the head over and over again. I want to talk about your, like maybe, you know, we're, we have about 23 minutes left on the time, but I want to talk about the capital strip mine. Cause I think that that is a nice commentary on how, what is happening in the fiat system, right? There's a lot of these analogies on like yeah. what the fiat system is doing, you know, both from a capital perspective, as well as 
let's call it from a resource and ecological perspective, which is where the, yeah, yeah, the, the analogy comes from. Do you want to kind of talk about that? And again, you know, how that ties into Bitcoin? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of different directions I can go in. I'll, I'll maybe I'll, I'll cover them very concisely now and then you can dig in wherever you think is, is going to be the most interesting. So I, I'm really pleased you mentioned the ecological perspective because that that actually that's, that explains the name as much as anything else um, that obviously I'm alluding to strip mining of natural resources, but uh, explaining how capital is a resource uh, that you can nurture and grow or you can just consume it and then wonder what went wrong. Um, in particular, what I'm referencing, well, it's not really referencing, it's what I'm sort of teeing up is uh, consistently referring to this book, which uh, I actually don't even know when it was, I should have found out by now when it was written. It was written a long time ago, but because I've confused a lot of people by saying it was my favorite book of 2020, but I read it in 2020. It was written, I think, at least 20 years ago. Um, but The Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry. Um, and he talks about... Um, he, he references strip mining quite a lot in reference to farming, but he does it in an interesting way where sometimes it's literal and sometimes it's just a metaphor. Um, it's kind of obvious why it would be literal and that what he's concerned about is farming in the US becoming less and less local and more and more industrialized, but in not in kind of like an anti-business sense, but in, in the sense that what he's concerned about is just carelessness and short-termism. Um, and so in some cases, there will- Which is a reality. The topsoil <laughs> in the US is, is being depleted like crazy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, he, yeah, so the, that's, that's, that's on the face of it what he's complaining about. But the reason I like the book so much, like, again, I'm not a farmer. <laughs> There's many things I'm not. Uh, I am not a farmer. So it didn't really speak to me in, in those terms. Um, learned a lot about farming, actually. So I recommend it for anyone else who's not a farmer. Um, but no, the main reason I liked it is that, uh, well, not only is he, a, he's like a really excellent writer. So it's, it's a pleasure to, to read and I guess to learn about farming, if that's the reason that you want to read it. Um, but it comes through in his excellent writing that it's really a lot more philosophical than just being about farming on the face of it. Um, and I think it's a very natural analogy. Like a lot of the quotes that I, you know, the reason I use quotes in the first place is they're highly applicable to, I guess, I guess, you know, what I'm calling capital strip mining on the one hand, but conceivably any situation where some intangible resource is being consumed because people don't appreciate it in the first place. I think that's like in the broadest strokes possible. And, and the book is effectively, I guess you could call it like a, a lamentation of that happening specifically with farmland in the U S but also just in general, you know, wherever that's happening, it's, it's sad. Um, and that it, it wouldn't happen where, um, where this not done in such a, a clumsy top-down manner. And this is why I referenced localism before that clearly that would never happen where the resources actually locally controlled as they you know, originally were. And certainly in farming in, in the cases he's talking about, but again, in every case this could conceivably apply to, including the ones that I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment where it's where the resource I'm claiming is capital um, because it only emerges locally in the first place it, it comes about because somebody has taken on a i guess you could say a custodial role and has been adequately long-term oriented to sacrifice consumption to forgo consumption in order to build up this resource um so yeah so sorry just to round out the the back the link to your uh, your initial comment that um in the case of farming and you could probably go a bit beyond farming and still have this be true without it being too abstract but it inevitably leads to minor ecological disasters. Um, and I only say minor because they, they tend to be, um, not to downplay their significance, but rather just to reflect that it's local successes that are then destroyed. So because the, 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 the successes are necessarily local to start with. So only minor in the sense that they're fairly limited, but that, the, but that approach to managing the resources ultimately consumes all of them. So it's sort of just aggregating minor failures until they become major failures. Yeah, I mean, and if you were to now go from the ecological perspective to like the economic perspective, 
you definitely see that today in oh, yeah. uh, in the yeah. current you know economy the repo uh like uh the repo markets um you know qe across everything pricing breakdowns you know there's all of these crazy symptoms that are kind of a result of yeah this same mental model of managing the economy from a central bank perspective yeah yeah i'd, I'd go a little bit further than that um it's not to disagree at all. I'm, I'm sure you're completely on board with this, but just specifying what exactly the problem is. And this is part of it. I, there's a line towards the end of the capital strip mine where I say something like, you know, I uh, hopefully I won't be tarred and feathered as a, a no coiner apologist shill. Um, but this won't necessarily like this as in this setup, this economic setup won't necessarily lead to disaster. It just very probably will. <laughs> Um, because it's, I, I guess maybe what a good way of thinking about it is that it comes down to the incentives of those involved. So that, I mean, that's where referencing, it's, it's a bit, I guess, loose. It's somewhat vacuous on its own as terminology, but top down versus bottom up. If you have a top down approach, whether it's to, you know, agribusiness in the US as Wendell Berry is very upset about, rightfully so, or central banking as gradually consuming, um, well, everything in the economy effectively, you know, gradually bringing more and more price single price signals under its control. You are not, if you're in the position to affect that, you are simply not incentivized to be as long-termist as is necessary to uh, care for this resource. And, and again, in this case, capital. We're probably focusing more on capital now than, than farming because. Again, I'm not a farmer. Um, I just like the analogy. It's a very good. It's a very good analogy. Well, I mean, I think it's a great analogy just because, like, one of the biggest things that I would say Bitcoin deniers don't get is this idea that fix the money, fix the world. That the broken yeah. nature of our money is leading to so many of the problems and symptoms that we're dealing with today. Yeah. Um, I so like they almost say, underplay the importance of this and how interconnected the whole system is. Yeah. I, I like that you said don't get rather than disagree, because I think that's key. In my experience, pretty much nobody who is not a Bitcoiner. So there's an interesting distinction there, right? They're not no coiners necessarily. They might be pre-coiners. <laughs> um, or pretty much no, Or oh, yeah. The well, shitcoiners don't get it def either. Definitely in that case. Um, but pretty much nobody knows how money actually works. And if anything, I find that that's, this didn't happen to me, I explained how I arrived at this, but I think it's relatively common actually that that is one of the classic first steps that before you even necessarily believe in Bitcoin, you realize not even what's wrong, I guess that's maybe a bit further down the road, but you realize that you actually never understood how modern money and banking works. And then when you start to, you're kind of terrified, but it's too late because you're you're already tumbling down the rabbit hole and then eventually you find Bitcoin. No, I, I think that's very well put. And uh, I want to trans transition over to talking about Bitcoin as Venice because with the capital strip mine, you kind of paint this picture of like what fiat is doing to capital, to resources, to nature. And then with Bitcoin as Venice, it's like almost like the other end of the coin, which is like, if we had a great way of, you know, communicating value, we can have this beautiful kind of like output that is, you know, mm. you know, what Venice was during the Renaissance and uh, let's just call it like the, the peak of the, the gold standard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I mentioned this right at the start that um, uh, Bitcoin is, I forget exactly how I put it, but Bitcoin is Venice is kind of the, um, the most fun the most silly there's actually there's it's a shame we've only got however long we have left because there's many many different directions we could go in and actually the piece itself is basically it's by far the least coherent it's just like a celebratory kind of you know we've got we've slogged through parts one and two well done reader you now understand economics from first principles more or less you have a feel for why this is all awful uh why will it be awesome when <laughs> when we have or, well i was gonna say when or if but it's probably a when um when bitcoin becomes more embedded so i don't know which one do you want to pick up on because we, we if we yeah no let's i mean let's talk about, about every section it's probably like a minute on each <laughs> no i mean i want to talk about like why is it going to be awesome right we talked about kind of like what fiat is doing to the world let's talk about why we think that bitcoin's better 
Sure. Well, probably the most natural starting point then referring to the essay specifically would be Bitcoin is Ariadne, which is the first section. Uh, and I think it provides a very nice answer to why Bitcoin is better, which is it's similar to what we've been talking about so far in that it somewhat transcends economics. So I'm obviously referring there to um, the application of, of Wendell Berry's thinking and, and just wider philosophy, applying that metaphorically to better understanding capital and better understanding economics. Um, Bitcoin is better because it's it's voluntary. It is an inherently peaceful technology. It, it might be one of the only inherently peaceful technologies that, well, I need to be careful. I need to maybe backtrack a little bit there. Of, of anything of similar likely power, likely potential to change how humans interact with one another, it is almost certainly the most peaceful and one of the only peaceful ones, one of the only purely peaceful ones. So I'd say that's better. So well, why is it peaceful? Obviously there's the opt-in aspect. There's also from like the sovereign individual, there's this idea of like the logic of violence. It's just very difficult to scale um, extracting private keys from a population. Um, can you kind of d dive in a little bit like why is Bitcoin peaceful? Like, sure, sure. Well, basically, because as a, if you don't even think of it as money, you just think, think of it as like a technology that has uses, and obviously the use is money. But we'll just put that aside for now. Um, it is far, far. I realize I need to now say cheaper, so maybe we can't put it entirely aside. Um, but it is far, far cheaper. I mean, no, far, far doesn't do it justice. It's it's so many orders of magnitude cheaper that it it you can't conceive of it properly it is so far cheaper to defend the use of bitcoin than to attack it um, and that simply alters the way people have to behave you know if you want to i mean the dream clearly would be that in a you know post hyper bitcoinized world if you want to interact with someone even if you say um Actually, I don't really know how to make that more specific. Yeah, if you want to interact with someone um, and for whatever, you want their Bitcoin, basically, right? You want the ability to, you want, uh, let's say, I'm trying, what's a good abstraction of money, like universal credit. You want, you want universally accepted purchasing power. Um, pretty much the only thing you can do is offer them something of value that they voluntarily decide to trade for. Um, because if you try to take it by force, not only will that be significantly more expensive than, and you can think about this in terms of incentives, like it doesn't even need to be moral necessarily. If you have some you know, ability to, <laughs> to expend resources or consume resources in the attempt to acquire Bitcoin, you may as well just do something they value because it's gonna cost you so much more to try to take it by force that like there's just no there's no point to and actually what i'm particularly keen on is that and i i don't i mean obviously this is another one of these things where bitcoiners clearly know it but i don't think others do and i don't think we do quite a good enough job of basically memeing it like there, as far as i'm aware there's no good meme for this apologies if there are i don't know all the bitcoin memes um but i think it will end up being completely commonplace that it's not just expensive it's impossible it's you know a, a, a sophisticated enough multi-sig set up will exist for any remotely meaningful stash of Bitcoin such that even torture won't get it for you. And that's basically, that's like, that's the $5 wrench attack, right? That, you know, what you'll, what you have to resort to if you want it is torture or the threat of torture. But I'm not sure that's even going to work in the long run. And so it's inherent, my claim that it's inherently peaceful is that violence, it will make a lot, not all, you know, this isn't like a, an entirely utopian vision, but it will make a great deal of violence totally uneconomical. And in, in particular, you're talking about violence from the state onto its population in mass. Uh, that, I think that's the most obvious example, but I wouldn't necessarily, I don't see why you'd stop there. Just say violence. Like it's, it's the clearest to conceptualize how that will change in terms of what we're all used to now, but 
but I mean, it's, it, it applies to any, any, I guess I'd say any organized violence. And actually I'm sort of, I, I gave a good lead in there somewhat by accident um, to one of, one of my favorite pieces that I reference in Bitcoin is Venice, um, which is an essay by a historian called Frederick Lane, uh, which is called The Economic Consequences of Organized Violence. Um, and it's funny actually, because this is, the, I encountered this in the first place because it is leaned on quite heavily by, or in rather the sovereign individual. They, that's how I discovered this and then ended up reading a lot else by Frederick Lane, which I recommend once you've read mine, clearly, if you have the time to do all of this. Um, and his, his argument, this is getting a little bit off the, the top of the Bitcoin, but you'll see the relevance more to your question, actually, than to, uh, than to Bitcoin itself. Just keep it going, um, maybe. No process needed. His, uh, his, his argument is effectively, or it's not even his argument, it's more like a, a presupposition of his that you can tell he's a bit frustrated that neither historians nor economists really seem to want to take that seriously because they kind of think it's the other one's job but that there always has been and likely always will be a market for violence. And not in the sense of like, you know, you hire a hitman or whatever, but it's, it's far more relevant defensively in the sense that um, any meaningful economic production, we can actually even tie this into the capital strip mine, any, any meaningful accumulation of physical capital um, requires adequate protection from violence, which itself has a cost. And then basically what he does in this essay, which is really, really, it's, it's fascinating. If anything, it's kind of a breath of fresh air in terms of its, its realism that he just, he, he may have them. I don't know. I don't know what he was like as a person, but it just drops any moral pretense. It's like, what is the, the economic calculus here? Um, and I think that's relevant because I think, I don't want to sort of ruin the essay. And I'm, to be completely honest, I'm not sure I can adequately uh, recite it properly on the spot. I just thought of it now, just in terms of the way that you phrase that. Um, but if people do go away and read that, and it's not that long actually, so I can I can throw in that recommendation too. If you go away and read that, I think you'll come out with possibly an even stronger appreciation for Bitcoin because you'll realize that it's not just you know it's not just the organized violence of the state, whatever you even mean by that. It it's any organized violence. And you, you might even, I, I think I'm, my impression at least is that within uh, people who would describe themselves as Bitcoiners, I'm, I'm probably the least libertarian, I guess, which is weird because in normal life, you know, out, outside of this, this niche, I'm, I'm often painted as absurdly libertarian. But I think within this group, I'm probably the least in that I, I accept, I don't want to quite say I accept the reality of the state. But it almost more in a kind of Frederick Lane sense, I accept the reality of violence. Like violence is real. Power is real. Yep. What matters is how Incentives people, are real. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. What matters is how people are incentivized to use violence and to use power and to organize violence and power. Bitcoin, I don't think it quite fixes that. I'm not going to go that far, but it massively improves that. And I mean, you talked about the sovereign individual outside of all the books and essays that we've talked about. I personally find that to be the most important book that you can potentially mm. read about Bitcoin. Yeah. And um, obviously a very well re researched and cited book as it is. But the whole it, the whole idea of the book is the Internet software changes the logic of violence. Like it's, yeah. it's all about yeah, it's and as the logic of violence changes, so does human behavior and they kind of take a very historical look at you know as farming and society kind of built up how that incentivized violence to change how gunpowder coming about incentivized violence to change and now you know let's call it digital e-cash and the internet and microprocessing that is now in the world going digital that is also like a gunpowder yeah. level kind of innovation. It's, it's funny that you you said earlier that your two favorite books on this that you know aren't themselves explicitly about Bitcoin or this and the wealth of networks because my uh, sort of deliberately cheeky, snarky summary of, well, of both, of like what they have in common would be something like, come on, guys, the internet is like, it's real. It's a real thing. You have to stop pretending it's not a real thing because everything is going to change, damn it. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, that's definitely, I think that both books are very connected. One is a lot more like, 
focused in on macro and the other one is kind of more focused in on like what like networks in particular um but they're both excellent all of your essays are excellent bitcoin in, in venice like literally forced me to read it multiple times because there's just so much to it and honestly this podcast i feel like we're just barely scratching the surface so i would love to get you back on and have, uh, have further deep dives for sure but um, now that we are getting kind of to the end of our hour, um, Alan, want to give you an opportunity to kind of give the Bitcoin Magazine audience your last word. My last word? Oh, uh, come to my talk, I guess. I'm The whole point of this. Right? You can even talk I'm, about the talk. I'm gonna be, yeah, yeah I'm gonna, well, I'm going to be speaking in, uh, in Miami in a couple of weeks. Um, it's, oh, it's just going to be amazing. I have not written it yet, but it's going to be good. Yeah, I mean, since we didn't talk about the talk and uh, you haven't written yet, I'm just going to completely not talk about it at all. But I know more or less what I'm going to say. I do actually need to sit down and like do some slides and stuff like that. I, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not completely going to wing it as fun as that would be. I don't know if you ever heard of this, by the way. You know, there's you can find this on YouTube. There's a game where um, people get a PowerPoint that they've never seen before and they have to present it. I thought that'd be kind of fun for this. I'm not going to do it. Don't worry. Can, yeah, you're going to get the audio only. You, can't, you guys can't <laughs> I terrify Christian. It's just not, um, I'm not going to do that, but it would be really funny. Yeah. Uh, so, um, what's the title of the of the talk? And uh, just give us the the high level. Sure. Yeah. So the uh, well, title and subtitle is important because the title is incredibly pretentious, and then the subtitle tells you what it's actually about. Um, the milk of paradise title. Uh, Bitcoin in the Western Canon subtitle. Um, the idea, well, it's kind of, I don't, I almost don't want to ruin it because I don't really tell you what the talk is about until maybe a third of the way into the talk. Um, but the idea is basically that I think we need to, not exclusively, certainly, I didn't make that completely clear. Um, we need to expand, I mean, need to make an effort to expand the appeal of Bitcoin beyond just what I'll very loosely characterize as tech and finance, right? So not that there's anything wrong with them. They're clearly important and they're clearly appealing to some people, to many people. However, they're not appealing to everybody, right? The Venn diagram includes quite a large group who don't care about either tech or finance. And so the very simple argument that I'm gonna make, uh, hopefully entertainingly is we need to make it appeal on the basis of culture. Um, I agree with that. That sounds like a very wise uh, well, You're not allowed to disagree. Yeah. Well, I, everything that you do is gold, Alan. So um, I tend to agree with uh, with Signal. That, come on, that's that's offensive. Gold is a shit coin. Okay, I'm sorry. Everything you do is Bitcoin and I tend to agree with, yes. with Maximum Signal. Um, so, we hit our time. I got someone in the waiting room who's uh, trying to talk to me. Where can people find <laughs> you? Where can people learn more about you? And, you know, obviously, if you're not going to Miami, we're already sold out. So sucks to suck. But uh, you can catch Alan's talk uh, being streamed live uh, on, uh, on Bitcoin oh, really? Tags and YouTube. Yeah. I'm not sure I knew that. I feel like I probably should have known that. But that's fun. Um, yeah, just Twitter, honestly. Like, there's a couple other places. But um, it's all coordinated through Twitter. So you can. Fantastic. Eat. Dig into the rest. Yeah, that's what we coordinate. Great yeah, tool. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what's your handle? Alan F32. All right. Awesome. A -L -L sorry. A-L-L-E-N-F32. Y'all, go give Alan a follow. We're going to get him back on the podcast. This, you know, we just got a little taste of uh, what is cooking in this guy's brain. And like I said, be at Bitcoin 2021. See him uh, speak about, uh, you know, just... The, the the milk of paradise and you know what bitcoin is going to do the world and how we're going to appeal to uh to the masses uh but until then follow me at ck underscore snarks follow bitcoin magazine at bitcoin magazine and uh yeah give us those five star reviews you know the drill peace thank you so much a quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only you should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media 
the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research. 